This is Geek Gab with your host, John and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab episode two, excuse me, one sixteen. John Denver presents Logan Lucky and Kingsman, the Golden Circle. That's right. These two movies, both of these movies, which I have seen in the past week. Sponsored, I'm guessing, by John Denver. And uh, we will get back to why that is in mere moments. Uh, but before we do, Donald, do you want to say hi? Hey, everybody. I'm sorry I missed last week. It was a glorious weekend. I spent uh, three days in beautiful, sunny, uh, did I say sunny? I meant rainy Denver, Colorado hanging out with old friends and playing card games all weekend. Which brings us back to John Denver, the sponsor of today's show. <laughs> it, it all comes together. It's, it's all tied. Um, there's, there's some next level Illuminati stuff going on here. So in an odd coincidence, these two movies, which I don't know if they, other than starring the same actor other than starring the same actor i don't know that these two movies could be more different and yet both of them um both of them featured heavily a john denver song now having only seen the kingsman the golden circle would you be able to guess which John Denver song featured heavily, uh, at least as a thematic element, in Logan Lucky? I I wish I could I could answer that. I I did not get the John Denver connection because I'm not a I'm not a fan. Is it okay at to one, not be a fan of John Denver? At one point, one of the characters in the kingsman begins singing a song in a specific situation oh that's a john De of course it's a john denver song because he mentioned that john denver was his favorite uh artist earlier in the film now yep. now now i get that i should have guessed that same song is also featured in logan lucky it is country roads take me home to the place i belong west virginia Mountain Mama, Take Me Home, Country Road. You, you're familiar with the song, people, who are hearing this. Uh, and a big hello to everybody in the live chat. You're familiar with the song, I assume. That same song, which featured in The Kingsman, was also uh, heavily featured in uh, the movie Logan Lucky. In fact, it is in the very first scene of the movie, a father playing the song for his daughter and telling her why that John Denver song is their favorite song of all time. So let's talk about Logan Lucky. Logan Lucky is made by Steven Soderbergh, who coincidentally also did Oceans 11, Oceans 12, and Oceans 13. The remake, uh, at least the first one was a remake of a, of a Rat Pack movie from the 60s. Now, that is critically important when you go see Logan Lucky, because if you don't know that Steven Soderbergh is the director, you're going to be mightily confused because Logan Lucky is the redneck Ocean's Eleven. 
All right. So take all of the concepts, all of the themes behind Ocean's Eleven and move it to West Virginia, redneck country, Appalachia. And in point of fact, that is so much the case that at one point during the movie, they call it out officially. They're talking about because of certain things the characters have done that people are calling this robbery Ocean's 7-Eleven. So, <laughs> um, it's it's got that uh, it's got the guy from Star Wars, right? The guy who plays the uh, the new Darth Vader. Yes, Adam Driver Adam is Driver. in it, and also Channing Tatum is in it, who is in the Kingsman, and also played like the werewolf or whatever in that. In Jupiter rising, Jupiter unbound, Jupiter descending, Jupiter blowing up. Oh man, you totally spoiled that that movie for me. I, I had no idea he was a monster in it. Uh, he he sees the main. You haven't seen that movie? No, no. Good lord, no. That's an awful movie. He's he's the main. He's the main hero. He's some kind of human wolf something hybrid. I would be totally offending Bright if he were here. Fortunately, he's not. Um. Yeah, I mean, hey, ha has Channing Tatum really found uh, his spot yet, or what? Between uh, Logan, Lucky, Kingsman, and uh, the Twenty One Jump Street movies, uh, I I'm not going to say he's totally typecast, but he he totally fits that that role in those not quite serious movies where he gets to goof off a little bit and you know look big and and uh, handsome and everything. Um. I just, I keep on forgetting who he is. Like, he falls out of my brain the minute I'm not watching a movie of his. And I'm not saying he's a bad actor. I don't have anything against him. It's not like I have, you know, a grudge against him or anything. I just, he has a completely generic face. Uh, I, I almost feel embarrassed, but I, I don't. I really, really don't. Um, it also stars uh, our brand new, well, I guess new, it's not really new anymore, it's just been over 10 years, the current James Bond 007, Daniel Craig is in it, Seth MacFarlane is in it in a large bit role, uh, Katie Holmes shows up, and this is quite possibly the most perfectly cast Katie Holmes role ever. She uh, really, really nails this part. She plays a um, just slightly edging towards middle-aged mother, uh, Channing Tatum's ex-wife. So, uh, and I, it's, uh, man, I'm trying to, like, put this together. The movie is kind of entertaining in a lot of ways. I found it very, very slow for the first hour up until they had to justify something that was completely nuts. Daniel Craig's character, his character is named Joe Bang, and he is an explosives expert. That's what he does. He blows things up. Specifically, he blows 
bank vaults up so people can break in and steal all the money. Now, when you, uh, at one point, he's going to blow something up. And so he takes two bags of gummy bears and dumps them into a plastic bag that you get from a grocery store bag, okay? A grocery store bag. And then mixes in a couple of common chemicals that you buy off the shelves and says that this is going to be the explosive he needs. And the other characters go nuts. They're like, how can you possibly blow up this vault we're breaking into with gummy bears and some basic chemicals? So he turns uh, and starts writing the chemical formula on the wall. He tells them about ions. He tells them about unstable chemical uh, mixtures and does the exact chemistry formula on the wall in chalk. In the middle of the heist. So they did that because if you didn't see him giving specific details about the chemistry, you would just assume this was more Hollywood BS. Everybody in the audience would be like, them Hollywood people, they always faking everything. But it was interesting. It was funny. And I have no idea, because I don't know enough about chemistry, but it could possibly be that they actually got the chemistry right. It could possibly be that it wasn't complete BS. It could possibly be that it was actually a real thing you could do. Because he's not making dynamite. He's not making C4. They don't need a huge explosion for reasons I'm not going to go into because I don't want to spoil the movie. But they need a, a precisely calculated explosion. So... That's what he needed. That's all he needed. And he knew it, and he made it. And uh, what happens after that is hilarious. It's amazing. I really enjoyed it. That's the point at which the movie really began picking up for me. I mean, at the beginning? Sorry to interrupt. You said that was at the beginning of the movie, right? No, no, no. I said that was halfway through the movie. Oh, my mistake. The beginning of the movie, the first hour of the movie, was kind of boring to me. Because they're setting up who the characters are. They're setting up the situations they're in. And on Ocean's Eleven pretty much jumped straight into the robbery. From the very minute the movie began, as soon as he walks out of that prison, as soon as Danny Ocean walks out of that prison, he begins planning the robbery. And the very first person he contacts is his partner for the robbery. And he talks him into getting coming on board for this robbery. And then they begin recruiting people for the robbery. So the movie, right at the start, is about the robbery. This movie is not. At the start, it's all about the characters, the situations they're in, yada, yada, yada. And it's it's kind of a slow roll. It's slow to get going. Which is weird because, I mean, everybody knows it's a heist movie. So it's weird that they wouldn't sort of set that up at the beginning. I see where they're going why they did it because uh, 
you have to understand all these character situations because it plays into what happens later. None of the rest of the movie would would make sense without them laying the groundwork at the beginning. But it is still stuff that they've laid the groundwork for that's not necessarily very interesting. So it's it's more like uh, lock, stock, and two smoking barrels then, where they sort of set everything up, and then a heist is involved, and then, well, I sure hope everything goes sideways because that's how movies get fun. Um, yeah, the actual heist itself is not a huge part of the movie. I mean, it's a significant part, uh, but it's it's definitely not the beginning. It's definitely not the ending. There's significant stuff that happens after the heist. Um, a couple of other random notes. They get up some solid knocks against George R.R. R. Martin and how long he's taken to write the next book. Um, they've got some people who are very, very upset that George R. R. Martin hasn't written the next book yet, and they're demanding that someone produce the next book, and the person is unable to, and he has to talk these violent people out of doing violent things just because he can't produce George R. R. Martin's next book. Um, That's kind of bizarre. <laughs> yeah. You understand it in context. I'm trying not to give away things, because here's the thing. We're talking about a heist, and how the heist unfolds, you aren't told at the beginning. Again, Ocean's Eleven, you're being told what's happening as the characters then go and do it. And you kind of have a little bit of idea about their plan, but not a lot. But in this movie, they don't even do that. You have no idea how or what the characters are going to do. And the couple of pieces of information you do have are absolutely insane. It's absolutely nuts. And so I can give this away. They say to Joe Bang, um, we have a plan to break you out of prison. And he kind of stares at him because he's in prison. And he says, you have a plan to break me out of prison, do the job, and then break me back into prison without anybody knowing. And they're like, yes, yes, we have a plan to do that. So that's all you know when you're going into the heist, is that they have a plan to do that. And you have no idea what exactly that plan is. Um, the movie also stars uh, Sebastian Shaw, who played Bucky Barnes in it. And he does a good job in a very small bit role. Um, so did I enjoy it? Well, I enjoyed the heist part of it, um, the ending part of it was okay. It was nice to see him tie up all the ending threads. The first hour or so I found kind of boring. It's not a bad movie. Everybody in it turns in good performances except for Seth MacFarlane. Um, and you see, I, I sense a smart-ass comment coming this way about Seth MacFarlane. Am I, am I wrong with that? I, I mean, like, uh, you generated massive psychic energy throughout the world just by pointing out the obvious that Seth MacFarlane is a terrible actor. Um, <laughs> he, he may be an amusing writer, uh, but he's a terrible, terrible actor. Uh, it's amazing that he keeps getting put on screen. Um, in um, fact, we, we've got we've got a couple of friends of the, of the show who who are raving about his new television show. He's got a new show out, Orville. It's it's sort of uh, you know it's it's a mockery of Star Trek, I guess. 
Yeah, I've, I've got some thoughts about that. We may get to we may get to that later. I've got I've I've watched the first three episodes of Orville, which is all that's out right now. Um, so I've got some thoughts about that. Um, but everybody else turns in great performances. Katie Holmes nails her part again. She doesn't have a huge part. She got a very key part, and she absolutely nails it. She just does a perfect job. Um, so it's good to see that Katie Holmes is at least has been cast perfectly correctly as uh, as the character she and she plays Channing Tatum's wife, and they're divorced, and that whole dynamic between the two of them and the little daughter um, is what drives his motivations to set up this heist. So. Yes, folks, I'm sorry. I gave it away. It's a heist movie where Channing Tatum is robbing banks, and at the very first minute of the movie, you find out that he's a divorced dad with money problems with a little girl, and that somehow plays into him deciding to rob a bank. I'm sorry I ruined that for you. Obviously, that was a mystery nobody could see coming. Nobody would believe that a dad who's been divorced, who's poor, who has a daughter, might possibly, maybe, the fact that he robs a bank later in the same movie, that those two things might be connected. I know it came out of nowhere. It completely shocked me that he decides to rob a bank because of things related to him being poor and him uh, not having full custody of his daughter. I, I was floored. I literally fell out of my seat and hit the floor. Uh, and then had to stand back up because my, you know, my back was in a big pool of uh, of pop. It was sticky. It was it was an ugly situation. So I'm sorry to have spoiled that for you. Um, did I ruin the movie for you, Dornall? You know what? I was just uh, just in middle of getting myself a ticket, and I stopped uh, right as you were saying that. And I said, you know what? It's just not worth it anymore. Um. See, people expect at this point some kind of rating. Well, I would give it three out of four star. I wouldn't. That's not not how I do things. Or I'd give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. I would give it a very qualified recommendation because this movie is not going to have super broad appeal as far as I can tell. But there's a certain portion of the audience who will absolutely love it in you know, far out of proportion to anybody else. So for those people that fall into that category... You will love this movie beyond all belief. Everybody else will probably find it mediocre. So, so I've got one really important question, and and I chose to see Kingsman over over this because I really liked the first one. Um, so, if I were to go see it, the one thing I'd be worried about is the use of the setting and the uh, and the characters all being basically rednecks. It, do they? Is it? Do they play off of that setting, or do they just make fun of rednecks the whole time? You know what I'm trying to say? It, it is the most... It, it is quite possibly one of the two or three prejudices that are perfectly okay in Hollywood right now. If you've got a southern accent, they hate you, and they can say that you're inbred, that you're stupid, that you're a hick, whatever. Um, this movie does not make rednecks all rednecks seem like idiots now they are rural and they seem on the surface to be simple and there are definitely two idiots in the movie but they're not idiots because they're rednecks they are idiots who happen to be rednecks um and you later find out that the people you thought were simple the people you thought were 
uh, kind of dumb turn out not to be what you thought they were if you re if you watch the whole movie. Um, you find out that a lot of complex things are going on under behind the scenes that you weren't seeing. It just like Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve and Ocean's Thirteen, a lot of machinations are going on that they don't show you until the right moment to build dramatic tension or to reveal the secret of something. Um, my one complaint about the heist is that there were just too many. It was too fragile. It was too many moving parts. Uh, but that's also a common complaint with a lot of heist movies. Uh, this one, especially the Oceans movies by Soderbergh. So. Fair enough. Yeah. Th those people who love this movie, who, who like this movie, will really, really uh, like it a lot. And everybody else will be like, oh, that was okay, I guess, or maybe even hate it. But uh, they do not hold up rednecks to for abuse just because they're rednecks. They don't make fun of redneck religion. They don't make fun of, uh, you know the area or the culture. One of the characters, uh, Katie Holmes, by the way, uh, the mom who's divorced from Channing Tatum, she's married and her husband is presented as a nice guy who's a wealthy guy. And uh, he's not, he's not insulted because he comes from this area. He's presented as just kind of being, uh, you know, at odds with Channing Tatum. They have different cultures, different expectations, and so they clash a bit. And because Channing Tatum is the point of view character, you're on his side, but the dad isn't really a bad guy. They don't, they don't portray him as being a monster. He's just this other guy who's intruded on Channing Tatum's family, and you kind of feel that animosity. But they could have made him into some kind of caricature of, uh, you know, uh, uh, an abusive father or a, an evil rich man or a, you know, a dumb redneck who made his money running meth or something, and they don't. So, uh, Oh, good. Um, there's a lot of bad things they could have put in the movie, but they didn't. I, here's the other thing, and I found this is absolutely fascinating. If you go to the IMDb page for uh, Logan Lucky, you will find out that... Um, the writer of this movie has absolutely no other writing credits. They've never written anything else. And supposedly, uh, the name that's on the movie as writer is Rebecca Blunt, but nobody knows who they are. Um, according to IMDb, Some people suspect that she's a fictitious, this is a fictitious name, it's a nom de plume, or uh, uh, that they are uh, unidentified. The person didn't show up on set, exchanged emails with the cast, but nobody knows exactly who they are. Nobody knows who their real name is. And so although Rebecca Blunt doesn't have any other credits, they may have actually written some but some other stuff, either been part of this uh, screenwriting for a movie or something, but nobody knows. Nobody knows who this person is. Huh. I found that fascinating. That's great. Uh, how does that even happen in this day and age that a, a you know a big budget Hollywood movie gets written by nobody? I, the only thing I can bet is that they knew Steven Soderbergh somehow before this all started. So, cool. all right. 
You're a big fan of Kingsman. You liked the first movie. I I did. I, I in fact, you know what? Before we continue, let's uh, let's pause and let everybody go back and listen to our episode where we reviewed <laughs> the first Kingsman. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's okay. We'll wait. I I mean, I've got to go uh, take a bio break anyway. <laughs> uh. All right. Well. <laughs> Yes, I I really liked uh, Kingsman. I mean, the the capsule review of the first one is that aside from a sort of uh, jarring tonal shift in one particular a bloodbath of an action scene, it was like a fun sort of comic book James Bond type of movie. Um, it was really enjoyable. So I was happy to go see uh, this uh, new Kingsman, which is more of the same and of course they they of course try to crank it up to 11 as they're just doing more of the same so um, you saw this one too right oh yeah yeah i wouldn't watch this i even took notes oh you took a notes a couple pages of notes i was taking mental notes um the 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 big note um the big note that came to my mind as I was getting up and, you know, the credits were rolling and, I, and you know, you you have that like initial reaction uh, to a movie. My initial reaction was, what did I just watch? <laughs> it was a bit I, bizarre, wasn't it? It was a strange, strange movie. Um, what can I say? So it's the same sort of thing as the as the first Kingsman, right? Like you've got this James Bond world. It's a little more um, outrageous than than your typical James Bond movie. Um, I I would even say cartoonish uh, in the like the toys and the level of violence and, and things like that. Like the whole thing is really cartoonish. And well, I, I mean, I don't want to give away the whole thing, but I, the conclusion I came to is that um, all of the actors had a lot of fun doing it, and I don't think any of them, aside from maybe the guy who plays Merlin, the uh, the Q uh, counterpart, uh, it really put in a serious effort. Like they, everybody knew that they were in a, this crazy, campy, wild ride of a movie, and. And they just had fun, and they it was 100% ham the whole time. Now, do you think it was more campy than the first movie? Yeah, I it feels that way, which is interesting. I because when I sat down and they started reintroducing characters, and they they made a lot of callbacks to the first movie. I found lots, that I had lots, lots. It's full of callbacks, and I found out that I hadn't remembered most of the first movie. Um, Interesting, right? The because uh, see, remember the first movie ends with a whole bunch of people with basically a worldwide zombie outbreak as people go nuts uh, for a short period of time, um, and then a whole bunch of rich and famous people their heads explode with colored plumes of smoke. Little mushroom clouds of yellow and purple and blue and green. Um, I think the movie was more outrageous 
the action was more outrageous. The action was, you know, bigger and crazier and and really, really, um, you know, turned it up to 12, as the saying doesn't go. Um, but as far as the silliness of some of the things they do, I don't know that it was more silly. Uh, I don't know that the specific threat that they're dealing with um, the progression of that threat, the four stages of it, I don't know that that was more campy than chips in your neck that blow up your head with the plume of colored smoke. No, it, the, the threat itself felt a little more real, a little more visceral. Um, the, what, really, what really threw me off and, and sort of made me realize that I was watching the silly campy movie was the over-the-top action. The, complete, yes. the completely ridiculous acting from everybody involved. Like, like everybody knew that this was going to be completely silly, and, and it was pure ham. The most notable was the villain played by Julianne Moore. Um, that, that's revealed in the trailers. Everybody knows that. Um, she's completely insane and, and plays it up the whole time. Um, I mean, you have to, right? Like someone says, "Hey, you get to be a Bond villain, right?" You have to go, you have to go nuts with it. Um, uh, it was just, it was almost hard to believe the whole time, uh, and that wasn't even like the 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 the. There are performances in the movie that made me scratch my head even more. Um, the the president of the United States is a total caricature, and it's not a caricature of anybody in particular. Uh, but like his actions and words are completely insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Jeff Bridges, I'm pretty sure, is literally drunk on set the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> he's just there to play the same old guy, Jeff Bridges' character. He's played in like three or four movies now. Um, I, I think it's left over from True Grit. He decided to play an old man, or it may be... Um, Crazy Heart, whatever that uh, country and Western movie he did right before True Grit. Uh, and he, he's just been playing that same kind of character uh, put in different situations in several movies since then. Whenever he's called upon to be an old man, unless there's a, a script he really loves that he can, he really like sinks his teeth into, he just kind of trots out that stock character. Um, so so let me let me try and summarize like for people who are thinking that they might want to see this movie you, you know what are you going to get out of it right without spoiling anything you are going to get the same um you know james bond world you are going to get the same cheesy you know destroy the world or or take all the world's money sort of evil villain plot you're going to get even more crazy action scenes that occasionally tip over to that sort of gory uh, you know, really excessive violence sort of, it's not quite as disturbing as that scene was in the first one where they shut up, uh, you know, the church shoots itself up. Um, but the, like the violence gets to that level a couple of times. Um, and you're going to get completely off the wall acting from some of the better actors in Hollywood. They're just, they're going to go, they're going to go ham. Um, and I think there's a reason why uh, – I think that's the reason why you look at uh, – I looked at the reviews ahead of time, and the critics are, are completely panning it. But this is one of those you know, 45% tomatoes, but 
you know, 75% people who went to see it actually like it just because, you know, it is what it is. They, they go crazy. They have fun. And if you want to go have fun, that's what you're going to get. One of the, um, one of the funny things, one of the nice things about it, um, is that they could have made the president a caricature of Trump or whoever else they wanted to, and they didn't. He has absolutely nothing in common with Donald Trump. He's not a caricature of Trump. He's just a, uh, it, it, he's an, I don't want to say that. He's just a politician from Central Cache. He's just every slimy politician you've ever seen in a movie, kind of with that same way over-the-top personality. So he's, yeah. uh, no, go ahead. Yeah, and 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 that actually, the the parts with the president of the United States were the craziest and funniest parts of the movie. Like it, it's it's so over the top. Like the stuff that he says and the decisions that he makes in response to the villain. Uh, unlike <laughs> anything, it, it, whatever you expect the president of the United States to do in that sort of situation, whether. Um, even in even in other spoofs of the genre like Austin Powers, you know, that's they sort of have like a reasonable response to Doctor Evil. His responses to the villain are completely insane, totally unreasonable, <laughs> and and he 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 does it. He's with such um, energy and and conviction that the whole theater laughed. That was literally the the second funniest thing. In the movie was that moment when when he when he responds to the villain, and then um, <laughs> and then later the the consequence of that as all the people are succumbing to you know the villain's terrible um, you know worldwide plague, um, what he does with the people with the victims, well you know while we're waiting for the heroes to save the day, absolutely everybody destroyed the whole audience that I was with. We all cracked up at what was happening. Uh, what the president was doing in response to the villain. Um, Unbelievable. The, pre the president, by the way, folks, is played by Bruce Greenwood, who if you've seen the first, the reboot Star Trek movie, the very first one, um, he plays the guy who goes in and, and recruits Christopher Pine for Starfleet, who says, um, I challenge you to do better. I dare you to do better, or whatever the line is. Um, and he's also in The Core. Uh, he's in many other movies too, but those are the two I, I primarily remember him from. Um, but he, uh, so if you remember that actor, he's uh, he's got kind of um, he also plays the president in National Treasure Book of Secrets. The president who uh, comes down into the catacombs with Nick Cage and kind of sort of gets kidnapped a little bit before he lets him go. Um, he is absolutely has nothing in common with that person. <laughs> absolutely nothing in common. Yeah, like I, I really, really hated the president in this movie, but then it sort of clicked that this was nobody here was taking anything that's going on seriously. So, yeah, and it's and, and they're not uh, they're not taking it seriously, and it's not malicious. I mean, none of this is malicious. They're not pointing at any one group of people and making fun of them. They're not making fun of right-wingers or left-wingers or, you know, anybody else. They're not making fun of religious people or, or non-religious people. It's just 
Uh, it's just meant to be a fun movie, which is, you know, it's a big change of pace from the way Hollywood normally does things. Uh, I also, it's kind of cute the way the, um, the movie of course has a, like an English perspective on the whole story. Yes. Uh, And so every American we run into has a Southern accent, including the president. I mean, except for the, uh, his secretaries who are with him, right? Like everybody has a Southern accent, including the president. Um, even the guy from the Statesman, you know, they were introduced in the trailer. Um, very clever. If you ask me <clears throat> the Statesman, even the guy from New York city, um, yeah. he's the guy with the bullwhip that you see in the trailer, right? Like even he has a drawl and the hat and a, and a bullwhip. So, um, <laughs> The funny thing is, too, is the way they present Kentucky is 100% completely like country western. That's what the entire, uh, everything you see about the state of Kentucky is 100% out of a country western song or movie. The bar you see is a country and western bar out of every country and western movie you've ever seen. Um, the Statesman's headquarters, and I agree. I thought the Statesman, the concept of the Statesman and how they got involved and why they got involved is absolutely clever. Now, from what I know, um, the person who wrote the original comic that the first movie was based off of, which is Mark Millar um, and uh, the other guy's name I've just lost, Dave Gibbons, um, they set up the, the, the Kingsman. And so this movie kind of expands that to an American version of the Kingsman. And of course, they're called the Statesman, which just makes perfect sense. And who they are and what they're doing is absolutely an extreme Americanized version of the Kingsman, but not in an in insulting way, not in a, uh, uh, not in a derogatory way. You know, the movie almost feels like satire. It's almost satirical. That's how how unrealistic it is. Yeah, and and one of the things, and that ties into one of my uh, complaints of the movie. If you like that sort of action with suspense and and everything, th- this movie fails to create any meaningful stakes, which is odd considering you know a good portion of the world's population is at risk, is literally at risk of death, right? Um, in, you know, including the main characters and everything, but it doesn't feel that way. And they set the tone right at the beginning of the movie with that wonderful chase scene. Once again, I'm, I'm only describing things that are in the trailer. Uh, that's at the beginning of the movie. Um, and and um, Eggsy dispatches them with a push of a button. And that happens a couple times in the movie where, you know, they, they're in this terrible situation and, you know, bullets can't hit them. And, um, it's it, it's uh, it looks like satire, right? You know, if if this were like airplane or the Naked Gun or something, they would uh, they would use some funny camera angle to show how absurd it is that there that there's you know a two by four in between them and a hail of machine gun fire, and you know, <laughs> and they survive just by cowering on the floor, right? You know, but they don't they don't play it like that. They play it straight. Um, and and the effect is is that if if you realize that like I like I did about you know halfway through the movie I got it right I was I was annoyed at the beginning of the movie because I'm like this is stupid he just dispatches them with one button press he's never going to be in danger and then at that point halfway through the movie when they're and I'm not I'm not exaggerating <clears throat> there are two by fours between them and an actual machine gun fire um, and they survive it. 
I will point this out. When they drop to the floor, they're actually dropping behind a stone wall. Uh, it's a, a one of those walls with a bunch of different stones that are all mortared together that are held in place by concrete. Oh, okay. So. okay. Well, then it has to be the the super cool Colin Firth who's permitted to stand by the doorway <laughs> and, and yes. avoid, and none of those bullets pierce the the wood. <laughs> um, um, Matthew Vaughn, by the way, the guy who directed this movie also directed Kick-Ass. He also directed X-Men First Class, uh, the first Kingsman movie, um, and then Stardust, which uh, was a good Neil Gaiman movie, a uh, good Neil Gaiman book, but a bad movie, and something called Layer Cake, which I've never heard of. It's 13 years old. It looks like a crime, one of those brutal British crime movies. Uh, it's got Daniel Craig in it. I've never even heard of it before, which kind of surprises me. Uh, it's got Tom Hardy in it. Um, I don't know. I don't know either. I, I don't so, know. so, so yeah. Those are the kind of movies he makes. Those are the kind of movies he directs. Um, yeah, this is basically Kingsman One: The Secret Service, just turned up, uh, turned up the absurdity. That's the word I'm looking for. The absurdity is turned up a bit. Thank you. The absurd that it is more absurd. Yes. You didn't think that could not... happen. I mean, they already had Samuel L. <laughs> Jackson playing himself as the villain and people's heads exploding, <gasps> right? Did you catch that in the credits? What Samuel L. Jackson's, uh, what his involvement in this movie was? Did you catch that in the credits? I missed it. What was it? Okay, at one point in the movie, they have a bag of dope on the table and they do this cool little camera move into the dope and it becomes trees of a jungle. Um, so the little round tops of the buds become trees of a jungle. At the very end of the credits, it says, dope provided by Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> so Samuel L. Jackson had a baggie full of marijuana that he provided to the movie as scenery. Not as a prop. They never touch it. So it's not a prop. It's scenery. I thought that was hilarious. That, I didn't. That's really, really funny. And and make no mistake, Daddy Warpig says, Baggy, it was probably a pound. <laughs> it's just this <laughs> big pile of it. <laughs> I, 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 I do not know a ton about marijuana because like Eggsy, I've never been heavily involved in that world. But uh um, I did think some of the callbacks they made were great. One of the callbacks they made involved um, a specific singer who shows up in the middle of a movie for no particular reason, uh, Elton John. And I'm not oh, going to reveal everything God. about what Elton John did because that would spoil things. But at one point, Elton John says to Colin Firth, if you save the world. Colin Firth asks him, if I save the world, can I get two tickets to your next concert? And Elton John says, uh, darling, if you save the world, you can get a backstage pass. Wah, wah. <laughs> now, that was a callback to the first movie, um, which I don't Never. necessarily want to discuss in detail because we try to keep a family-friendly rating. <laughs> it is not a family-friendly callback. Um, <laughs> Which but, is funny because that's actually the second callback to that moment. Yes, in the movie. because 
uh, and this is where I was, you know, winding my way around to the character who has that moment in the first movie. If you, uh, and I'm going to apply a little uh, euphemism here. Um, the character who says, in effect, summarizing, euphemizing her words in the first movie, if you uh, save the world, you'll have a backstage pass, um, is Princess Tilda of Denmark. So she's wealthy, she's powerful, and she shows up in a huge role in this movie. And that was the thing I liked most about the movie because you absolutely did not expect it. I did not expect it. You might no, expect him and the, the hot spy chick to hook up, but he didn't. Eggsy, and I'm not giving anything away because this comes pretty early in the movie. Eggsy is in a committed relationship with Princess Tilda of Denmark. And at one point in the movie, we get to see his first dinner with her parents. The king and queen of Denmark eating food with this chav off the streets of the East End of London. And even funnier, in order to set that scene up, in order to set up how he can sit down with the king and queen of Denmark and go through an entire multiple course meal and be, have absolutely perfect manners, we do a callback to Colin Firth's training from the first movie, telling him about what the glasses are, telling him about what the silverware is, telling him how to eat properly. It is a great callback to Colin Firth's character, and it's a very... Uh, it's a very nostalgic moment, and that was one of the best moments of the movie for me is when he's remembering Colin Firth's training. Because it comes across as very real. It comes across as very unaffected. In a movie that is full of completely absurd things, absolutely absurd things, that one moment plays as very, very real, and I like that. I thought they did a good job. I, I, I agree 100%. That, that was the only moment that actually touched me throughout the whole movie and didn't make me roll my eyes. Um, um, which is great, and and as far as the as far as the girl and the relationship goes, I thought it was interesting and totally unexpected because it's influenced by the James Bond, you know, the ladies' man. So it is surprising that they went that way because uh, that would sort of break the character type, where it where it'd be you know James Bond or Sterling Archer now you know total womanizer. But on the other hand, at the end of the movie, I, I think the, I, I think she's Swedish. Actually, is it Swedish or Danish? Either way, um, you know, he hooked up with a princess at the end of that. You, you don't only Leonardo DiCaprio could walk away from that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and, and she's yeah, and she's not just a uh, a princess. You know, she's uh, quite attractive uh, in both movies. So yeah, I. There were parts of the movie that were very, very enjoyable, and there were parts that were, depending on your tolerance for absurdity, there were parts that were so absurd they may take you out of the movie. But yeah, like, you... I, I, like I tell you what, sorry to interrupt. You, like I have advice as far as absurdity goes. Like if you want to see this movie, but but the absurdity, you have an absurdity limit, just go up for your fresh popcorn or bathroom break when Elton John's on the screen. That's it. The rest of the movie. 
Um, I will say this. This movie would absolutely have worked if it had been an anime. Um, because it has that level of absurd action that you frequently get in anime. You wouldn't have even... Uh, I wouldn't have even thought twice about it uh, if it had been some kind of anime movie. Yeah, and, and that brings me up to a, a minor complaint I have. Because, um, like I said, it, about halfway through the movie, I realized what type of movie I was watching. <clears throat> and even even at the end of the movie, like my brain didn't get it. I was like, "What did I just watch?" <laughs> I I like really good action movies, and I knew that there's gonna be a lot of action, but it was all cartoonish. Yes, and and that's okay. But I vastly would have preferred because they had some interesting choreography, and they used that speed up, slow down sort of uh, uh, and and rotate the camera action. Um, uh, combined with a lot of wire work and animation um, to do two things. First of all, really show you know the, the sequence of events that happens during this fight. Um, in my opinion, these things could have been done with traditional camera work. But the other thing it does that you can't really do with traditional camera work is that it hid all the cuts. One of the yes. biggest fights in the movie appeared to be a single take with one guy running a marathon with one fucking camera on his shoulder, pardon my French, uh, spinning around and catching all the different angles and snapping back and zooming in and everything like that. They used all those zooms and spins and transitions to hide the cuts. And it looked like one long, like three and a half minute epic battle complete with a slow-mo Mortal Kombat style fatality finish. I'm, I'm of course talking about the fight in the diner. Yeah. Um, so that's something that you, that's something you couldn't have done with traditional cuts, at least not easily. So I give it a 50, 50 on, on the action front. Just know what you're going to get. Yeah. Really. If you're going to go see this movie and you want to at all enjoy it, just prepare yourself for absurdly over the top action. It just, it, that's, it, it's in the movie. That's what the largest portion of the movie is. Almost all the characters are uh, satirical. They're they're very very much not um, grounded down to earth uh, characters because they're not supposed to be. That's not what this movie is about. That's not what this movie is. So you just if you don't like that, if you can't hang with that, then you're gonna you're probably gonna hate the movie. But if you're okay with that, if you can. Uh, get with that, then you'll probably enjoy the movie because it's enjoyable on that level. So, absolutely, absolutely. Like I, I really, I, I was not sure what to think of it at first, and and I came, I sat down today ready to just tear it to shreds. But like the more I think about it, it's, it just is what it is. It didn't try to be anything else, and especially no. the act, the actors did not try to make it anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, Julianne Moore completely over the top. I mean, Colin Firth is the same guy who did The King's Speech, right? Mm. He is a great actor, um, but he rolls with the feeling of the movie, and he fits in perfectly with everybody else, which is absurd things that don't really... This movie isn't realistic. This movie isn't even trying to be realistic. This movie is taking the big book of things you must do to be realistic, pissing on it, throwing it out the window, okay, it, 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 into a giant fire, and then laughing and shooting bullets at 
the fire to uh, as it's slowly being dragged away by a cripple on an ox cart. Okay, it is not a realistic movie. It is not intended to be a realistic movie. And if non-realism bothers you, you will not enjoy the movie. Um, uh, to respond to something that said in chat a few minutes ago, uh, let's go extra nerdy on this, Daddy Warpig. Is this one heck of an RPG setting or what? Would you like to game as a statesman or a kingsman? If, if people were okay with it being um, almost like paranoia levels of absurdity, um, you could definitely have a great role-playing game that's just in um, in the same feel as the movie. But you could also take the same general concepts of a James Bond-style British independent agency and an American-style, uh, an Americanized James Bond independent intelligence agency that is the Kingsman and the Statesman, and you could actually make a really, really cool... Um, grounded role-playing game if you wanted to. If you wanted to, you could dial the absurdity way down and be as sort of realistic as you like. Um, you know, you can go back to classic Bond-style uh, uh, absurdity, or you could go to the new Daniel Craig-style, you know, brutality, but it would still be um, very, very playable. It would still be a very, very interesting um interesting setting you could make, especially at the end where people from the organizations begin serving with the other organization. Um, that, that opens the doors to a lot of fun stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it, whichever way you wanted to play it, you could make a really great uh, role-playing setting out of it. Okay. Uh, by the way, folks, independent intelligence agencies are absolutely real. There are such things in the world today, uh, one of whom, uh, and I don't want to get into politics, but one of whom um, may, had a big impact on certain of the events uh, in the last American political election, um, a private intelligence agency who gathered information from all around the world and sold it to different people. Um, so there, that at least is a real thing. Not... The James Bond style organization that is secretly hidden in a tailor shop with an elevator and such, but but private intelligence agencies are real. And, and you, so. you, you know what the the most the most effective real world intelligence agency that we know of in the real world? Can you name it? Uh, 4chan. Uh, 4chan, unbelievable. <laughs> All right. Do we have any last questions from? Uh, I, okay, I, I wanted to get to talk to the Orville. We don't have enough time to talk about uh, Orville. I may do that in my Castalia House blog post because again, I have seen the first three episodes and I've got some stuff I want to talk about with that. We just didn't have enough time today, so I may get to that on Monday when I post my Castalia House uh, blog post, which, by the way, links to all of my uh, posts on Castalia House can be found in the description of the video. Uh, below. So I would like to thank John Denver for uh, for sponsoring Logan Lucky and Kingsman. It was a funny tie-in between the both movies. They both featured John Denver's song. And were we another channel who wasn't afraid of getting kicked off YouTube, we might actually go out listening to Country Roads 
um, by John Denver. Unfortunately, uh, we're not. So. <laughs> yeah, just just queue it up on your playlist and pretend that it was part of the podcast. Uh, do you have any last words before we take off? I'm good. Uh, actually, it was a great. I love talking about the movies. Uh, thanks to everybody in the chat for listening. Uh, good times, everyone. Um, all right, folks. Just, remind, just a quick reminder: Geek Gab is now a not just one podcast, but is now an entire podcast network. We have three separate podcasts. Under the Geek Gab umbrella, the one you've been listening to right now, we also have Geek Gab on the books by uh, Brian Niemeyer, our fellow host who is not here today. And we have Geek Gab Game Night, uh, hosted by Doranall. Do we have another episode of that coming up anytime soon? Uh, should be probably in a week or two we'll, we'll do one. I had a special guest lined up, but he declined. So uh, I'm going to have to actually come up with my own content for once, and, and we'll have a show either next week or the week after. All right, folks. Uh, thanks for tuning in. By the way, um, you can click subscribe if you want to get the announcements of when the show is going live. Be sure if you do to click double secret subscribe, which is click the little bell icon. That way they'll actually send you an email that you'll get the announcement for the show. Um, or you can, you know, watch on Twitter, on Facebook, on uh, um, for the announcements we put out when the show is getting scheduled for them. Uh, unusual for today. We had it out seven hours before the show and repeated it several times. So you have plenty of time to be able to come in and participate with the unusually attractive and intelligent members of our audience proving, proving by the very fact that they have come to this show to participate in live chat that they are among the choicest individuals on the planet and that is not at all satirical or absurd. You can catch Geek Gab uh, youtube.com slash geekgab. Or if you are capable of typing, you can go to Apple's iTunes in the podcast section of the iTunes store. You can go to SoundCloud, or you can go to the Google Play Store. Just type in geekgab, and this exact podcast is available on all three places for download to your Android device, for download to your Apple uh, iDevice, or just for pure enjoyment of listening on the web, you can subscribe to this show and get it every single time we update the podcast feed. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We are signing off for today, but we will be back.